Well, you know what? We've been looking at Matthew and looking at the parables, so I would like you to take, if you would, and follow along with me in Matthew 13. Uh, Last week, we looked at verses 34 through 35, which is this editorial kind of transition comment where Jesus is speaking about the kingdom using story after story, which is what parables are. And as he's sharing these, he speaks first to the crowd, and, and, and they're not quite getting it. And so Matthew makes this editorial comment, and then they go into a house, the followers of Jesus, these 12 or so go into a house, and they sit down, and I imagine Peter or Thomas or, or, or John or one of them saying, you know, great stories, Jesus, but we're not sure we're quite getting a couple of them. And so as you go on, you see in Matthew chapter 13, that in, in the following verses um, of 20, uh, he, he tells us in, in 20, uh, what is it again, 36 to 43 of 13, he speaks about the parable of the weeds, and we've looked at that. And then after he explains this parable of the weeds, which we had talked about, is, is this idea that, that you live in this world, engage fully in it, and then you, through your lives, love the world around you. Because the whole idea of the weeds is that in a period of time, God is planting his, his Holy Spirit in the hearts of people, transforming lives. And at the same time, other lives are around you that may not know him. And at some day, there will be a great weeding out, so to speak, of all that is evil in every heart that is turned against the will of God. But during this time, he says we're to live in such a way that when, when we live in love in this world, we may come across people and be able to share that love. And be able to give that love. So that's why it's interesting when we come to this passage of Scripture after he explains the weeds in the world that we live in, he, he, he then gives these parables. He, he shares two parables. He shares one parable, which is about the hidden treasure, and the other one about the pearl. And we're going to look at these two together because often a rabbinic method of teaching would be to take two stories and put them side by side, not stopping to explain them, but using those two stories that have maybe some individual um, ideas around it, but there's one single point that those stories both point to. He did that at one point, if you remember when he was speaking to the crowd, and he talked about a mustard seed, and it was like that, he said, the kingdom is. And then he went right from there to, it's like yeast that allows the bread to be completely permeated so it itself grows. Well, here he's talking about two stories, and he says they're like this. And let's read verse 44 of chapter 13. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And I want you to note that he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. What you need to understand in this story that they understood when Jesus told it was that in Palestine, in the, in, in the Middle East in that day, there were no banks. You could not take your treasure or whatever you might have that was valuable and go to a local bank and you know, get your safety security box and, and put it in there and, and feel good about what you got there. They didn't have that, especially if you're living in the rural. It would be similar to, to people years ago, maybe even 100 years ago, who lived in rural areas where they didn't have banks around. So what they would do is they would take their treasure and they would either hide it under their mattress or hide it in some place in their house and hoping that no one would find it and it would be safe. 
Well, they would do that in Palestine because those, of, those people were in a more agricultural setting. So many of them were farmers living out in these areas where they were farming fields. And, and, and they would constantly have either thieves that would be coming through, so they would need to make sure it was hidden and secure, or they would have these marauding tribes. They would have groups of people that would come through at, at a moment's notice throughout all the years of Palestine. And, and they would just come through and, and, and pillage and plunder and take what was in the village and often kill people on the way. And, and, and often when a person was killed, they might have their treasure hidden and no one would know where it is. And so you have this picture of treasure being hidden. And the reason it's being hidden is people are trying to keep it safe because there are enemy troops, foreign troops that would come through. And when a foreign troop would come through, they were not necessarily real polite. They would go through the town, and if they wanted something, they would say, where's your, where's your treasure? We don't have any. And if they looked around and they went through the whole house and didn't find it, your treasure was safe. So you have this picture of this treasure being hidden. And, then it, and I said, this idea of hide it again, or he hid it again. You might wonder, why did he hide it again? Why not just unearth the thing, take it and go? Finders, keepers, very good, you know your um, truths, Right? You learn that as a kid, I'm sure. Finders, keepers, losers, leapers. You know, you see this thing, you find 20 bucks, finders, keepers, losers, leapers. I don't know who it is. Well, he hides it again. There's a reason for that. New Testament scholar Don Carson in his book, God With Us, themes from Matthew, makes this comment on this parable. Under rabbinic law, so the law of, of the Old Testament rabbis, if a workman came across a treasure in his master's field, left there perhaps by some previous generation trying to hide its wealth from successive hordes of invaders, he had two choices. If he lifted it out, it became the property of his master. But if he left it right where it was, he could quite legally wait until he accumulated enough money to buy the field and only then remove the treasure. So you you get the picture? Here's this guy. He's really excited. Um, he's digging at the ground. He, he's got something. He hears this kind of clinking thing. It's not like a stone. He's wondering what it is. Maybe it's a jar. It, it could be that it's hitting some kind of like a, a sack of cloth. And, but he's, and he, he's hoping no other servants are watching. Right? Digs away and he sees unbelievable treasure. I mean, he's a servant, a worker, who can, he's living from paycheck to paycheck. And before him is this huge amount of treasure. By law, he covers it up. Now, let me just show you. Jesus isn't talking about morality here. He's giving you an idea of what it's like when you come across the kingdom of God. He covers it up. goes, I am going to work like crazy. I'm going to liquidate everything I own. I'm going to get enough, and I'm going to go to the guy who's my master saying, I really like this field, really good field. I want to be a farmer. I've been saving. I'm liquidating stuff. I want to buy this little plot of land. I mean, no, it's not enough. I know it's not a lot, but, you know, if you just give me this, would you give me this for this price? And the guy goes, yeah, I'll help the guy. Gives it to him, and the guy uncovers the treasure that is beyond what's my oldest imagination. You see what's happening here? And so what Jesus is doing, he, he, he's trying to help you understand the comparison, the supreme value of a treasure that you might find that is worth every sacrifice you can make. You will do anything and everything. You will give all that you have to get that. Now let's go to the second parable. 
Second parable is that it's a pearl. In this one, he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who's looking for pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now we're talking about a businessman. And the point of the parable is not, again, that, that you can somehow buy yourself into the kingdom of God. But he's making this, this comparison that just like the guy who is living his life stumbles upon a treasure and gives all for it, there are some people who seek and search and, and, and they're hunting and looking and, and they're finding pearls. But finally, one day they come across this one pearl that is beyond any pearl they've ever seen. It is so flawless that he's willing to give up every pearl he's ever bought. He's willing to give up whatever he has that he might have this superlative pearl. Cheerfully, he will sacrifice all that he has, every treasure, for this one exclusive pearl. Pearls were an important thing in the day that Jesus lived. It was one of the um, signs of a person's great wealth. It was one of the treasures that people would hold. There were divers that would be in different parts of the, the um, Middle East area. In the Red Sea, they would, they would have these companies that would be diving and looking for pearls. In the Persian Gulf, they would do the same. In the Indian Ocean, they would have. And so there was these different places that were, quote, harvesting, looking, fishing for pearls. Do you know that um, the, uh, it said that the Egyptian princess Cleopatra, it said that she had a pearl so flawless that it was worth 25 million denarii. That's the Jewish denarius was, was a was a coin that was given to a worker for a day's wages, which was about $20. 25 million times $20. That's what they thought it was worth. Now, when you listen to these parables, I'm going to read it to you the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message. Because I think the way he captures this is the way that people maybe heard it. They're sitting there, and Jesus has been talking about this incredible regime of God, the revolution of Jesus that will come into any heart that's open and willing and wants God's presence working in and through them and wants to know this God who created and designed him. And he says to the disciples, guys, and I think there is often gals there too, he says Mary and others, listen, Here's what he says. God's kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field for years and then accidentally found by a trespasser. The finder is ecstatic. What a find. And he proceeds to sell everything he owns to raise money and buy that field. Or God's kingdom is like a jewel merchant on hunt for an excellent for excellent pearls. Finding one that is flawless, he immediately sells everything and buys it. And he just leaves them to think about it. And so ends the message. Let's pray. No, just kidding. I just want you to note the way people find God. That's part of what's going on here. It's not the, the single principle in here, but there is a sense that he tells these two parables in contrast, in a sense, how people find this extreme, supreme, superlative encounter of God that's beyond all value. He talks about a guy who's digging, who hears something click, and all of a sudden he realizes. He's engaged in his life. He's just going through his work, through the motions of the day. And as he goes through the motions of the day, 
It just so happens, it's almost as if he accidentally stumbles upon this incredible treasure. There is this sense that when people um, are living their life and as they're going through their life, there are times as they are walking through their life, some people who have good hearts, pure hearts, the Word of God has a number of different occasions where, where these people like Cornelius and others who, who were, were good people, were God-fearing people, as they're going through their life, at a certain point they just almost, it seems, stumbled upon, accidentally came to this incredible discovery that God in His grace loves them for who they are and loves them even in spite of their sin and they cannot believe it and they turn everything over to Him. There's a man, his name's Ken Blanchard. He was a, um, he's, a, he's a management leadership guru. Ken Blanchard, he's an author and an expert in this field of management where he's co-authored some 30 best-selling books. In the 1980s, Blanchard wrote with another person a book titled The One Minute Manager. Anybody remember that book? It became this incredible, phenomenal uh, bestseller. It actually today has sold more than 13 million copies and has been translated into some 37 languages. Blanchard makes this statement. Ken Blanchard said that after he had written the book and he watched its meteoric rise to levels that he would have never, ever dreamed possible, he said that in his heart he had kind of stumbled upon something. He wasn't sure what it was. And not only had he stumbled upon it, as he had this thing take off, he was also humbled by what was going on. And in the middle of kind of stumbling upon something, humbled by something, he began to realize there's something more in him at work, and and he wasn't quite sure what it was. But he knew it was more than him. He knew that somehow God had worked in and through him. Blanchard shared that, and he shares a story that he had been around Christianity for years without understanding the importance of a personal relationship that one has to have with Jesus. So he had hung around Christianity and he's been doing this stuff, a kind of God-fearing kind of person. And he says, through a series of remarkable events, writing this book, then soon after, stumbling into the path, in a sense, of a guy named Bob Buford, who wrote a book called um, Halftime, which is all about people who, who had become successful and wealthy, how they had moved through their life, and the first half of their life had been successful, and he was challenging these guys to give their life to God and to Christ, and to say, now make the second half of your life significant with what the success has that you've been blessed with. And so he stumbles into this guy, Bob Buford, and he says he meets Bob and his wife, and he and his wife are talking with him, and and Bob explains the whole idea of this, what's maybe happened is that God has been working through him and designing all this, bringing him all to a point where he would know this Jesus Christ who personally wants to relate to him and live through him and begin to guide him and direct him and use the gifts that he has for others. And then he says soon after that, he met a guy named Bill Hybels, who was a pastor of a church called Willow Creek. And Bill Hybels is a notorious evangelist. And he sat down with him and he said, you know, yeah, Bob Buford, he told me all about this stuff, Bill. And as he tells, and Bill had the opportunity to come to bring him to a point where, in his words, he says, through remarkable events, he found that knowing about Jesus Christ was not enough, so he made a decision to invite Jesus into his life, and in his words, he finally closed the deal. As a result of what to some appears to be almost an accidental success, God was leading and moving Christ followers into his path so that Planchard writes these words, I bowed my head and said, Lord, I can't save myself here in this life. 
I accept Jesus as my Savior. You know, you may be in that place today where you have stumbled into the ways that God has worked in your life, blessed you in, in ways, maybe not in the degree of something like a Blanchard, but you're going along and you go, boy, God's been at work. I had a guy who's in our church who just recently accepted the Lord just a couple of years ago share the very same thing with me. He said God had so blessed him. In fact, he was doing so well in the market that he, he pulled a lot, all, almost all his stuff out of the market just prior to the big crash. And he, he said to me, I, this is before he had made any commitment to God. He said, I, I just knew that God was calling me to do it. I'm going, that's cool. And then soon after that, he had a remarkable event where a person was led into his life. And I'd love to tell that story, but it's so cool. And at that point, this person led him to Christ. And he talks about the very same kind of thing. And you could be in a place like that. Where God has just caused you to stumble across, bless you, and you've experienced it. And all of a sudden, you're humbled by it. And you go, man... I need this God who has been blessing me in my life. Now, some of you need to realize this. You have been blessed by God, and I don't know how you've come into the grace of God, but as Maya said, we so often live average lives. We're ordinary people, but we have an extraordinary God who calls us to live in extraordinary ways, which means we should be keeping our eyes open so that as we walk through this life, the people that we might come across in our life, whether it's picking up the clothes at the cleaner, or whether it's at a grocery store, or whether it's a relationship that we have with a coworker at work, whatever it may be, God is designing, God is weaving, God is moving, He is orchestrating things because there are people that he wants to bless who have been blessed who are waiting for the remarkable events of a person like you to come into their life and say do you know this this person who loves you but here's an interesting thing as you go on in this parable you see not only do you see that there's this idea that you stumble across this incredible grace and goodness of God and His love, but he goes on to say there are some people who search after, seek after, they do all they can. They're grabbing pearl after pearl, and they're hoping that through their efforts they're finally to come across this one. Some know this hunger in their heart, and they do just like Jesus said. They're, they're asking, they're seeking, and they're knocking. And they don't stumble. They're, they're seeking so hard to get what, what, they, what they're hoping to find. And I think what he's calling us to understand here is there are some people who are very religious, who seek and they think to understand that if they could just get this pearl, if they get this one, eventually they find that it's not just these little pearls. It is this one incredible pearl. It's not a thing about what you do. That was the thing that Blanchard understood. He understood that all his doing, all the things that he thought he would do that would in some way attain God's approval and blessing would never be able to do it. Here's the person all throughout your life. You're just the, the opposite. You're, you're not even, you know, it's not a stumbling on. you seeking after. You've been in church for 40 years. You've been seeking and hungering. You're thinking, if I just do this, but you live this life of, of shame and guilt, and it's this continual cycle, and you're, you're feeling like, oh man, God doesn't love me, but if I do this, then He does love me. Back and forth. You keep, and all of a sudden, you come across this incredible truth, that there is this incredible pearl that is flawless in His love. And it's not based on you. It is this flawless pearl that, that in it has all the love for you. And they look at you and says, guess what? It's not what you do, but on the cross, it's all been done for you. You don't have to keep seeking and doing all these things with all your own strength. You don't have to live this cycle of guilt and shame. You can today live under the smile of God and know that He loves you. And live in it. That's the revival I think God is calling His church to. He's calling for people to go, man, this is the greatest news possible. It's not about how much I love Him. It's not about how much I read His Word. It's not about all these disciplines, although disciplines are helpful because they shape our hearts. I'm not saying they're not, but it's not about doing them to get God's approval. 
It's knowing you've been approved and affirmed by what God did on the cross through Jesus Christ and then living in it. And living in it day in and day out. So some people kind of stumble in it. They experience the grace and also one day they find this hidden treasure. And then there are other people who are seeking with all their strength to get God's approval, to get affirmation, to get God to say, please, you know, just love me, God. And he's saying, I have. And they find it. And there's the common thing. When you come into a relationship where you understand this God who loves you, who has created and designed you and loves you that much, you go, what do I hold back? What am I keeping from moving fully into that? There's some good questions that I would ask you to think about. What is the most valuable thing to you in this life? Let me ask you it this way. What is it that you think gives you life? What is the source of your life? What is it you, you feel like if you don't have that, then you just won't be able to live? God wants you to know there is someone who gives you life, and it's based on all his grace and his goodness and his love, and you can actually walk into it. The common thing in each of these, in each of these parables is this. Knowing and following Jesus has become the most important thing in their life because the most important thing that gives them life is the fact that they know that they are loved and forgiven and they walk in a relationship with a father who smiles on them, who promises to provide for them, who promises to care for them, who puts you in a place where, yes, you have to learn how not to worry and, and give all things to God in prayer, but you don't need to worry. He puts you in such a place that you don't, you know, you think, boy, if I gotta get this, I gotta control, I gotta manipulate, I gotta do these things. And he goes, no, you do all that you need to do and you do it all up front, but then you trust because this God loves you and He will give you what you want. And as He moves things, you just move into whatever it is He's moving you to do. You are in a relationship with a God who is so deeply in love with you like a father to a child that when He sees you make a mistake and He sees you do wrong, He just comes to you and says, you know what, that's just hurting you. And instead of living this sense of, oh man, God, or Father, would you just let me, you, you understand a Father says, once you acknowledge it, let's just go on. And let's live in that. Nothing is more valuable than knowing and following Jesus. What I think is interesting is this parable, which is this message that Jesus was giving again and again, is that when you encounter God, you give up all and say, I want to follow you with all my heart. And you do it with joy because when you know what he has is more than what you could ever know. I remember um, meeting with a very successful businessman a number of years ago, and I was telling him about Jesus, and we, we met for week after week, and finally it just dawned on me. I said, you know, this is all about following Jesus, all about knowing him in your heart and following him and, and understanding that. And I said, you know, if the, um, if the wisest, most successful, most, what I would call the best CEO sat down next to you and, and said, hey, guess what? I would like to, for the next three years, for three days a month, just meet with you and, and have you watch how I work and do that. And he said, I'll take care of provide everything. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that you can do that with your work and everything. Would you do it? You go, well, yeah, it's a no-brainer. I said, you know, let's look at it this way. You know, you like to invest. I said, what if the, the, the sharpest, most uh, talented investor came to you and said, you know what? For a couple of weeks, I'm going to just show you the trick to trade. I'm going to go through the whole market with you. I'm going to show you exactly what I do. I'm going to, I'm going to show you the best deals. Would you, would you take two weeks to do that? Well, yeah, of course. 
And I think of his, his relationship with his, his wife and with his family. He said, you know, if the most talented, most gifted therapist and counselor came to you and said, you know what, for the next year, I'd like to meet with you at so many different occasions so that this desire that you have to be a really good father and this desire to be really intimate with your wife, that through two years, I've just noticed when I've met with people that, that they get to this place, they begin to learn the tools of how to be intimate and the tools of how to be the kind of father you want to be. Would you do it? And he goes, of course. And I just said to him, you know, that's what it means to live in, you know, this Jesus. Jesus basically says, I've come from the Father, I've created and I've designed you. And if you would just acknowledge that and open your heart to me, I will give you my Holy Spirit. And I will guide you and lead you and direct you. And I will help you understand how you've been created and how you've been designed and lead you into all that. Now, would you do that? That's a big deal for people all of a sudden. It's just not just like one little area of your life. But think about it. If that's really true, and this God is here and he's speaking to you, why would you hold back anything? Why would you think anything's more important than that? What I think is... Uh, also interesting about this parable, and it's not just how people find God, but it's the way God finds you. And this is why I call it the people of the parable, because what I love about this is, as you read this, it's not apparent initially. And I don't think even the disciples, when they heard this, got this part of it. I think this was something that, that they began to understand after Jesus died. Remember, parables are stories that hide truth. Okay? Truth is concealed until your heart aligns with the Spirit of God in order to what's been concealed might actually be revealed. They're like what I call truth time bombs. Somehow at some point they detonate and they rock your world. It's, it's this, at some point after Jesus died on the cross, I think these truths of these stories exploded in the hearts of not just his disciples but a whole lot of people. They began to think about this pearl of great price. They began to think about this hidden treasure. And as they thought about this story, they realized that not only is God the supreme treasure that you sacrifice and give everything for, but you begin to realize, guess what? You and I were that treasure, were that pearl that God gave everything for. This is a funny way of Jesus telling the story. He's going, you know what? All God's saying is, you know what, when you come and you encounter him and you find out who God really is and you realize what he can be in your life, you come to this place, you go, I'll just give everything for it. But then you begin to realize, here's the flip side of it. Here's the way God finds you. God looks at you and he says, you are a treasure. You are a pearl. You are a person. You are a being that I've created that I would actually leave my throne room in heaven. I would come to this earth. I'd be humbled and grow up as a little baby. And as a baby, I'd move into the adulthood. And for three years, I would share in ministry and have people question me, ridicule me, they'd mock me. I'd have people who would stand against me. And then eventually, they would actually take me and they would, they would they'd bring me before court and they would arrest me and then they'd put me on trial. This is the God of the universe who came all the way from heaven. And as he's there, they would pluck out his beard, actually pull out grips of his of his, of his beard, they would take a thorn and, and they would take it as a crown and they would jam it on his head and blood would begin to flow down and they would slap him and they would hit him and they would poke him and they would make him carry a cross and they would bring him all the way to this cross and they would take this cross and they would put his hands on each of the crosses and they would 
with nails pounded in there and then hoist him up there. And he would, he would, on this cross, be sucking air, dying because he loves you so much. Think about that. At a certain point, this story hid this truth. You are a treasure to God. You are a pearl He has by His blood and His death made flawless. Not because of you, but because of what's in Him. And I thought of this, and Jesus all the time was saying these things. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. God the Father is like a shepherd who will look for even that one lost lamb. God is like a woman who looks for this one lost coin. God is like a father who stands at the edge of his property, does something no father in a Jewish culture would do, eyeing and looking every day for his rebellious son to come home because he loves you that much. Now, this God who loved the world so much that he'd give his one and only son that whoever would trust him, give their heart to him, would then give you his heart, which means his life forever. Now think about this. I've shared this story before, but it, it, it just kind of captures, I think, what this whole story is about. My, my wife, I remember when I was, some of the first few years of our marriage, and seven to ten years along or so, and we would have what, you know, the kids would want to call fights, but we'd always call them just discussions. We kept trying to tell them it's not arguing, it's really just a discussion. Anybody had those before? Well, and it often centered on how often I was away from home. And I would take out a calendar and I'd say, you know, but let's look at this, you know, and I'd try and prove, you know, hear this. And until, you know, I'm slow. Until one time it, it just hit me when I was in my time of journaling and I realized she's not really looking for time. She just wants my heart. We as people, when we think of God, so often we, we sit there and we think about, well, you know, well, he wants my Sunday morning and he wants a little bit of cash and then maybe he wants this. He doesn't. We get so caught up in, in, the, in the whole religious striving if we do this and God's going to be happy. He's like my wife in that situation. He goes, you know, guys, it's not about that. I just want your heart. So what holds you back? Anybody here, this God, has, He's come to fill your, full, your whole life with, with all the good things that He in His mind created you for. So why? Why would you not give it all to Him? I'm going to ask you just to bow your head, and as the team comes, we're going to listen to them sing and prepare our hearts for this next, just worship through generosity we've been calling this, but would you just bow your heads together? Father, even as we hear this song sung, we just want to, in the quietness of this, continue to ask that question. What of my heart do I hold back from you? Where are there rooms in my life that I just say you can't go in? When you've opened up your entire heart, every room in heaven, not just to come, but even now. Amen.